This is the Diverse Economies for Youth podcast. As part of the Dice Collective, our unique podcast connects scholars and leaders in feminist political economies to youth who envision an alternative world that treats them as people instead of as prophets. Inspired by the Kumbaye River Collective by African-American women in the 1970s, we invite you to listen along with an open mind and a hopeful heart. I'm your host, Serena Bahadur at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Excitingly, this is the first episode of season two for the Diverse Economies for Youth podcast. Today's episode is racial capitalism and what youth can do about it with Dr. Aban Joseph. Dr. Aban Joseph is a Nigerian Irish lecturer, author, and consultant. As a black feminist, her activism focuses on equity instead of equality. Based in Ireland, she is the founder and coordinator of the very first black studies module in the country at University College Dublin. Dr. Joseph is also a race relations consultant, the Director Institute of Anti-Racism and Black Studies, as well as a chairperson for the African Scholars Association Ireland. Notably, she has recently published her 2020 book, Racial Stratification in Ireland, a critical race theory of labor market inequity with the Manchester University Press. With a pressing focus on racial capitalism as the context for her work, Dr. Iban Joseph highlights alternatives to the systems and viewpoints that dominate our societies. Hello, Dr. Joseph. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's a real delight to be here. For me too. So before I really start to pick your brain, I'm thinking we should ground our conversation with the meaning of a very important concept in your research, and that is racial capitalism. So this concept was first popularized by Cedric Robinson in the 1980s. And since then, it's really been conflated with a lot of different meanings that sort of distract from what it's really meant to highlight. And as you're an academic whose research involves ideas around racial capitalism and its global impact, I wanted to ask you, how would you define racial capitalism? And as a follow-up question, why is this something that youth should care about? Um, thank you so much. I think it's really important, but first, maybe for the definition. So it's a, a racial capitalism really is a system that um, derives value from the social and economic exploitation of another group's racial identity. So it's really important. That, so you can see, so it's not a gender thing. So why gender is involved, it's a racial identity. So that is the, 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 you know, the economic exploitation of another group, you know, um, and that's so why we talk about this whole idea. So it, it defines um, how capital is used by the dominant white elite social forces to control and dominate the labor of, of certain groups. So it's not all groups they dominate, but so, so key things that you can see there. So number one is about domination. So there is this whole concept, this whole idea of trying to dominate, you know, um, another groups, you know, so it's about race, it's about the, the racial interaction in there. And so we see, so we see all of that. And and so we see, you know, things that happen, you know, for example, like in the diaspora, as we see um, a lot of resistance, you know, I think one of the key things that, so a lot of economists, you know, would have talked about you know, racial capitalism, you know, and all of that. But they will talk about it without mentioning the fact that it, it has to do with resistance. So that's, so you cannot talk about racial capitalism without talking about, you know, resistance. You know, the, the whole concept is built around this whole idea of um, resistance. And for youth, it's really important, really, really important for them to begin to know it because when I do a lot of my work around racial stratification and all of that, I ask one question. I say, look, it said a group of people 
whether you are talking about in New York, in Lagos, in Dublin, in London, in Paris, you know, black people, people of color, people who are black, you know, they find themselves at the bottom of the ladder, you know? And so two things are possible there. Number one, is that there's something wrong with the group of people or there's a system of operation that puts them at the bottom. Now, it doesn't mean there are no people at the top. I mean, we have Barack Obama who made it all the way to the top or, you know, people who've made it to the top, but they make it to the top in spite of, not because the resistances are not there, not because the challenges are not there, not because the things that try to keep people of color, people who are black at the bottom, not because they don't exist, but in spite of all of those things, they've been able to navigate their way out of those systems. You know, so so it is so so when we begin to so for young people it's important to know that because whether you like it or not, it's going to influence our outcome, it's going to influence uh generational wealth, you know. Because you look at you look at a parent who's not able to buy their own house, so it creates this whole cycle of generational poverty. You know, so so you just it's the effect is not just affecting one person, it affects a whole generation. Not being able to send a child to school, it becomes it creates a whole circle, a generational circle, you know. So then you find that the second generation, the third generation is going down the same line, unless we're going to be able to do something to you know to break out of it. And so things like you know, this really helps um, young people to know how to begin to put steps in place to challenge, to resist. You know, to find their own way to navigate the same contradictory systems that we have. Thank you for this, Dr. Joseph. I think that the way you mention resistance is such an important aspect of racial capitalism because it's hard to fight what you don't understand. Even though it's around you every day, I think awareness is vital in resistance. And since, uh, as you said, racial capitalism is something that's so deeply embedded in our world system. Personally, I would go as far as saying that it is the foundation that our world system rests upon. And in that sense, that's why it's so hard to figure out how it impacts you and your life generations down the line, as you've said. So being that you're a black woman who grew up in Nigeria and has now moved to and works out of Ireland, you've experienced in your life two radically different cultures, two radically different societies. Do you have any examples to speak on what it was like experiencing racial capitalism in these two different contexts? What did it mean experiencing racial capitalism as a Black woman working in Ireland versus in Nigeria? If we look at the fact that you know racial capitalism, all of this stems from you know the, the the they all stem from the same source. Whether you're in Africa or whether you're in Europe, it stems from all of the same source of you know the enslavement of black bodies, you know. So th that's where all of this has coming from: imperialism, colonialism. All of so they are they are tied to that, you know. And, and so so the impact the impact across both places in the world is there. But you know because say for example, I grew up in Nigeria because you know Nigeria is predominantly black. You know, so the, the, most of the challenges that I would experience there would be tied to my gender. We say it's tied to gender, but underneath all of that, the way our products are seen. So, for example, products that come from the African continent, the way they are valued, you know, when the, the, you know, the exchange rates, you know, um, what you pay for them, all of those things is all, also impacted by race. You know, but because you know, when we are in our in our little bubble, you know, <laughs> in, in that space, we see we only just see our blackness. Then we don't see how race is impacting on the price in the market. You know, the value of our education. You know, so we don't see all of those things. So we assume that our only challenge is gender. Actually, it's not just gender. You know, 
but that you know underneath you know it's an underlying you know bedrock that you know you know the racial aspect of it you know impacts on all of that so yes in, in ireland i think that in in ireland um, when we look at in ireland here um again i mean men so, so many challenges you know particularly for people of color i do in a lot of my research you know i found out that a lot of the black people who are here were not able to navigate the labor markets most of them in, in my last research most of them were able to get on unpaid work so again, so you see that circle of exploitation where their work is being exploited. So they are going into unpaid work. So they are working, but they're not being paid. So they are called, oh, your volunteer, your internship, you're getting experience, you know? So how does somebody try to get experience for five years, six years? Do you understand? But because they are trying to say, okay, I don't want, they are faced with decision. Look, they don't want to sit down at home and not um be engaged you know in employment or stuff so what do they do they say okay let me just look like i'm going out so they are going and doing unpaid work you know so again so you see that exploitation of their labor where you know as a person of color you become a commodity you know that can easily be bought you know you are you are on the market so you you, you might say oh but enslavement ended many years ago but you still see the same you know black labor being enslaved we saw it during covid you know we saw a lot of you know black labor that was used during covid particularly those who came to you know particularly who came into europe to seek asylum most of them were um, seen as essential workers but immediately covid ended most of them were given deportation letters you know so you can see so so again so it's it's like you know black labor is you know it's it's a commodity that can be bought you know it's put on the market it's put on display we buy it we use it and it's disposable you know, so those are just you know key elements you know that we see you know in, in all of that so yeah so it's a so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge it's a huge challenge we see that you know in, in in academy we see it in so many places you know for example in the academy here in, in ireland you know they are happy for you to come and give a guest lecture come and give a guest lecture but we're not going to give you the full-time job to be a professor you see, so we take your labor. We know we need your skills. So they, they want you to come and be part of a, a team to, to teach about um, decolonizing the curriculum. They want to phone you and send you an email to give them, you know, tips on how to decolonize. I'm like, okay, we can't be giving you tips from outside the academy. You're either inside the academy or you're not inside the academy. You know, so you can see again, so where, where black labor is being, you know, you, you know, being utilized, being um, taken, stripped, you know, used. I, we did a, a documentary. I did a documentary for the International Women's Day because the theme for the International Women's Day was um, embracing equity. You know, so it made me laugh. I was like embracing equity. I was as black women, you know, do we do we have equity in the labor markets? You know, so I said, let me find out. Maybe it's just me. Let me find out. So I interviewed a, a couple of women, you know, who were doing well. They were doing well in their field. So it's a documentary we have out there. And I interviewed them who were doing very well. Say, tell me about, you know, equity. All of them, all of them, not one person said they were experiencing equity, but they were all doing well in their fields. So, and so it's really important. I think one point I want to really drive home is that when we see black people doing well in the labor market, it's not because these challenges have stopped. It's not because these challenges have ceased. Because, and that's why people keep thinking, oh, you know, it ceased, it has stopped, you know, let's not do any more work. No, it's because these people have either have broken their backs, just trying to work five jobs, two, three jobs, not sleeping, you know, to challenge the system. To, it's, a, it's a constant resistance. And, you know, when you live your life on a constant resistance, it's challenging. It has an impact on mental health, uh, on our physical health, and all of those things. 
resistance being constant. This is important because when people see black people, uh, people of color excelling in any kind of space, they're like, oh, okay, so it is possible for them. And they kind of leave the conversations behind. But this is why we're here today. These conversations must continue for future generations. And as we see the conditions of the world that youth today are inheriting. Um, And the reason why I asked was because I wanted to know why should people care regardless of where they live now, where they have lived, where they might live in the future. And as you sort of reference a little bit, this sort of ties into the research that you've done on black women living in the diaspora. So I read your case study on the Isusu and the Agile systems as a way that Nigerian women living in Ireland are pushing against financial exclusion in Dublin. So what were these systems all about? How were they a powerful tool for black women and how did they push against the harmful effects of capitalism? I think it was a really successful one for many, many women, you know, particularly when they first came, you know, came into Ireland. You know, Ireland actually is a system where the, um, you know, cooperatives actually have existed here in Ireland before. We even have what, you know, we, we have, you know, some banks, you know, that operate on, on this system. But as a person of color, you know, there are structures and systems, you know, that are put in place for you to um, be able to assess a loan or for you to even assess any form of resources at all, you know, there is a, there, there, are, there are hoops for you to climb. If you can't buy a car, you can't take your kids to sports and school and all of the things, you know. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a vicious circle. It's a vicious circle that keeps people trapped in the permanent underline of poverty, you know. And so people don't see that. They look at, they isolate it. I'm saying it's important that we see it as how generational poverty is created, you know, so it's not just looking at one incident that, oh, she can't buy a car. It's no big deal. No, if she can't buy a car, that means that those kids cannot then be involved in the extracurricular activities that helps them to interact with another class of people that builds their own social capital. Do you see how it works? So you are not doing this. So you're not building social capital. You're not, you know, interacting. You are not. So all of those things, it, it's a slow circle because you wonder, like, how does it happen to this group of people? This is this vicious circle that we're talking about, you know, so that as young people, it's really important that we we see this circle and look for how to resist it, how to uh, how to break out of it always, you know, keeping our eyes open, being open-minded to different solutions that we can utilize to break beyond people's expectations for the roles they put on us as Black people and people of color. Yeah. So in, in your research, what kind of strategies and solutions did you come across these groups using to push against their ex- other people's expectations for them? I think they were, they were, quite, cre- they were quite creative and I thought it was very interesting because I thought, okay, it's best not to just write from what I know. Let me find out from people who are doing the susu to see, you know, how how they do it, you know. And um, some very interesting things. Some of them used to do a susu, you know, in Nigeria before they came to Ireland. Some of them had never done it, but their mom had done it, you know. Um, and so when they got here, when they had challenges with maybe like buying a car or maybe like a, a christening, a, a child's christening or Christmas, you know, um, you know, getting stuff together for Christmas, you know, and all of that. Um, so when they found out that, you know, like the resources that they needed couldn't, wasn't available, you know, they began to put together. So like, you know, small groups, one key fact that was there was about trust. So one thing that makes Osusu work is trust because you have to trust the group of people. Because if you, if you take your share of the, uh, the funds this week, you know, and you disappear, you know, you're going to, so, so there's a trust, there's an, trust is a key aspect of, 
Osusu. That's one of the key things, you know. So two two things that are important. Number one is trust. Number two is that you must be, you must have this uh, mindset of you know collect of the collective, not the individual. You know, so that's so that's just, those two key things are there. You know, this concept of Ubuntu, where you know, if I'm not okay, you're not okay. You know, I am because you are. So that so that concept, you know, and you know, from Africa, we grew up like that. I, I love that. And I think that these are the solutions and the strategies that people are using in order to mediate the impacts of racial capitalism and how they show that they refuse to be managed by it. And I find that the main idea that drives these solutions you're describing is that they're also community oriented. And I feel like that's what makes them so innovative and sets them apart from the mainstream banking systems and financial services that people are being um, yeah. excluded from. And and I like how it makes it about people's experiences with money and maximizing that instead of maximizing the profits from yeah. money itself. And as you said, like, you know, sometimes it can happen uh, in Nigeria, in the diaspora, like Ireland, even Canada, wherever. These solutions are coming out of times where people are feeling disadvantaged by banking systems and their policies, like high interest rates. And the, the wild thing is, is that this is not a new concept. Now, you know, fast forwarding to 2023, we have our youth today feeling uh, the pressure and the daunting nature of interest rates, mortgage payments, this sort of thing. And it's to the point where we're terrified about whether or not we'll ever even be able to own a home. It feels like a myth to us. We, we're terrified about whether or not we can even find an apartment to rent, let alone a house to buy. So... Now that you've explained some mitigating strategies that women in the diaspora use to push against racial capitalism, what are some lessons that youth can absorb from this? What would you recommend for those of us who are struggling with access to home ownership and financial services? Yeah, I think that, you know, like the, particularly if, if you read that chapter in, in, in the work that I, I explain it really well for those who might, who might be interested in learning more about it, you know, but I, I think like, like the, what the strategy the women use here in Ireland, it really worked for them. You know, there's those who use it on a smaller level, there are those who use it on a larger level. So there were those who use it for little things. So, so for example, if you don't have good credit rating, like I said, it's a vicious circle. So this racial capital is a, it's a very vicious circle. You know, so if you don't have good credit, if you don't have a good job, you don't have good credit rating. If you don't have good credit rating, you can't get the credit. If you can't get the credit, you can't get the things you need. Then you are stuck. Do you understand? So how do you break out of this circle? How do how do you not just say, oh, I'm falling down and I can't get up, right? So how do you get up in the midst of everything trying to keep you down, right? So so basically, like what this woman did, two two types of strategies they use, and I would suggest that for them so strategy number one is on a lower level on a lower scale so for smaller things you know where there's a group of friends a group of people it can even be in work it could be work related it could be industry related you know so you could be, look for people you trust industry wise you know a group of 10 group of 12 group of six you know where they make a collection it could be a weekly collection it could be a monthly collection it could be a you know uh, a collection you know and you know, in 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 Canada, you have the banker ladies who you know do those collections, who you know coordinate all of those things. You know, so so it could be a little collection like that, and those could be collections that can help for little things. For example, like a holiday, or you know, getting a you know a, a fairly used car or something like that. But when you want to then begin, so there was another group who did for a bigger for bigger things, you know, and those are people who are looking for things to buy their own houses. 
So what they did was, you know, 10 people, they, you know, they had a strategic plan of saying, you know, in the next 10 years, all 10 of us are going to have own our own houses. So that was, so that was a start. So, so what they were doing was to collect, to be able to get the deposit for the mortgage. You know, so so and that so so that really worked for them. You know, and so they were able to make the collections. You know, on a on a monthly basis. You know, larger amounts. You know, they were working, so they were able to collect larger amounts. Because imagine if you had to take that, you know, um, deposit as a loan, the interest you pay on it is so astronomical. But this is good in that you know there's no interest rate. You know that you know that you're paying. You know, and that helps. You know, and I think one of the ones that I really found really really very interesting was a. Uh, um, somebody who had extra cash, you know, had extra money, you know. So she wasn't doing a susu in a direct way. She was actually almost like a, a lender, but at a very minimal, almost like 0.2%, you know, almost like no, you know, no, almost like little or no percent, you know, interest rate charge. So she was, you know, lending to um, others as well. And that really helped to break that circle. So it's really about breaking that circle. You know, it's about understanding um, that impact. So yes, I, I think that there are ways, you know, to mitigate all of this. In fact, is to understand the system, that there is a system of operation that, so not to internalize it, to say something is wrong with me, you know, because that's where the problem comes. When we internalize a systemic problem, the problem we did not create, we met it here, we inherited it, you know. So this, so this system we see, this system of exploitation was inherited it came all the way from the enslavement of black bodies so that's where it came from and because we have not unlearned the system nothing has been done to eradicate it from the system it is still there so we cannot expect you know um, the impact of racisms and sexisms to go away when we've not actually done anything to to deal with it so it's still there mm -hmm. so it's still so we're still living with it it's all about how we can work together to stop internalizing a problem. It's impossible to do everything on your own. Sometimes you need a sense of community, not even to just get through hard times, but just to get to a new place in your life. And I think that these ideas you're describing, these lessons could be very useful tools for us to grasp because it gives us a new way and a new logic to think with. I find that with myself in my own mind and with a lot of other young people I talk to that there isn't as much conversation around and sense of community as there could be. And I think it's because, you know, living in the diaspora, we're so used to doing things only one way. So in this highly individualistic culture, we're used to doing things in a highly individualized way. We're taught to believe that if we can't achieve our big ticket goals like home ownership or, or car ownership ourselves, then we've already failed. But what you're explaining and what you've dedicated so much time and research to prove is that individuals who are part of a community that invest in one another yeah. are individuals that can always succeed. Through that, what ingredients do you need for a collective like this to work? It seems that the antidote to racial capitalism, which is all about the individual, is a cooperative reversal where trust and reciprocity are prioritized. So how would a communal system like that work? You, you mentioned trust. Where do you find this abundance of trust and how do you use that? So you mentioned something about young people. Now, I'll go back to that and I'll come back to this topic. So capitalism bangs on. We are commodities. They sell to us what they want to sell to us. So that, because that is beneficial to the system, the system has explained it to us, made it attractive to us to see its benefit. So there's a kind of blindness that the system sells to us. It makes you not know, to see the other side. 
And so that's what the system is. So you can see the same system we're saying, you can use it to help yourself for productive things. But you are not made to see those things as productive. You are made to just see them. You, you are made to see them in odd little mundane things. No, they don't want you to save. Yeah, because a saver is somebody who's going to make a difference, and they don't want they want us in perpetual poverty. So it's remember it's about I said something that's about domination. You have to be dominated. You have to just be kept at that level, never able to break out, and that's the control. It's about control. It's about domination. So it's not, it's not about anything else. And, you know, some, some people write, so it's about exploitation. So these key things have not gone away. You know, and, and we can't be ignorant. We can't live ignorant lives and not understand that this is what's happening. Because, again, don't just forget that it doesn't just impact on you. It's going to impact on the, it's a generational poverty, it's a generational problem, it's a generational wealth. It's true. You're right. And that's what it's all about. You know what I mean? You're saying it's about that domination, that control. And if you can control someone's mind, there's so much, only so much you need to do beyond that. You know what I mean? But these um, foundational ideas that you're describing, ones I haven't even thought of, and I've read so much of your research, you know, studied a lot of international development. I didn't even consider that. And that's why these conversations are so important to um, close the gap between uh, uh, generations and our knowledge and what we can do in the future to change the world into something that we're proud to bring our kids into, that we're proud to grow up in. And I think these are the ideas that can strengthen a community of any background, any generation, any race into something that every single person can invest in and believe in. This has been such a generative conversation and I want to leave it off with a few words of wisdom from you. What would you say to youth who want to get involved with a community money managing group? How do you build these or find them? And also, what kinds of tools or advice can you give to our youth to empower us to get involved in dismantling racial capitalism and humanizing economics so that we can see a future we actually want? So key things, so again, and I've mentioned this before, is about resistance. You know, in my research, I showed that there are three types of people. There are those who collude with the system. They collude with the system, they stay at the bottom of the ladder. So in this racial, in this racial hierarchy, there are people who, um, in the hierarchy, yes, they are black or they are mixed race or, you know, not, you know they are non-white, they are at the bottom. Why? They collude with the system. They agree with the system. That you know what I can't do this, you know I can't have this, I can't be this. They collude with the system, so they remain at the bottom of the ladder. The system challenges them; um, they become um, depressed, they become you know dis discouraged, you know, they become demotivated, you know, because like oh I keep trying, I keep trying, I can't get it, you know. So they stay at the bottom. They collude. Then there are those who adapt. So those who the adapters are those who you know they change themselves and you know they then fit into what is available. Oh, you can only get this kind of jobs. Oh, you can only you know you, you are going to be a full time renter. You know you are going to be a you know you are going to be five or few in a, in an apartment. We we collude with that. We agree with it. You know so they they adapt. They, they adapt. But there are those who resist. They are at the top of the. They resist. Now remember I said that you know the constant resistance has an impact on our health. You know so that's why I still fight that that. Um, space of resisting. That's why we keep fighting this for the change. We don't have to. We don't have to keep always resisting. But if you are a resistor, then you are, have the opportunity to start making change. So what I'm selling to young people now that you have the mindset of resisting. Don't accept the system. 
Racial capitalism, racial stratification only wins when you stop trying, when you accept the system, when you say, I can't, I'm falling down and I can't get up. That's it. It's won. That's how it wins the game. So you have to keep resisting this. How do we resist? Keep looking for a way. And so what we're talking about, this is just one way. There are many other ways. Some people will never need this because, you know, they, they, they're going to be able to have their own resources, blah, 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 blah. Some people are going to be at a certain stage in their life that you need it. If you need it, the resources is available. Again, it's so trust. Who are the people, you know, within your circle, you know? Look for, your, look for people within your circle. Put structures in place, you know, put systems in place, you know? Who you know, you know, it can start with a, with a little, with a little, um, with a little amounts, you know, where you then build trust. So trust is something that is built. You know, some some is, you, I don't, I can't just look at you and trust you. A suit doesn't make you trustworthy. Like a lot of the women who did in in Ireland here, they were people who knew each other for years. So they picked, you know, they approached people, you know, who they knew and said, oh, I want to do this. You know, from doing this Esusu, you know, you actually get skills. Skills, you get money management skills, you get um, um, administrative skills, you know, that you can use in work. You know, so you can put all those skills down even in a CV when you're applying for a job. Because you learn, you learn, you know, accountability, you know, because you have to pay. You, those, are, those are all skills. Because when I talk, when I, those are the things they talked about, accountability. Because we're now accountable to each other. But beyond that, it also means that we're now in each other's lives. They understood each other's problems. They were support networks to each other. So it is powerful in that. So again, so these are key things you are looking at. Accountability, you know, who are those who are accountable? You know, when you notice that in their life, you can approach them, you know, and start with a, with a, a little, with a little, um, uh, a little pot of money. You know, or a little, a little project. You might say, okay, you know what? This year, let's collect for a holiday, or let's collect for, you know, let's collect for something. You know, let's collect for Christmas. Let's collect for birthdays. Let's, you know, just do do something small, and then you can then filter without those who are who are irresponsible. <laughs> So, yeah, so you can use that as a weeding system, you know, so that, and before you know it, you start growing bigger and bigger, you know, into bigger things, you know, and before you know it, you start collecting for a mortgage. Because, like I said, there's a group here in Ireland, they are collecting for, you know, they are working and they are collecting, you know, to, to buy their own houses, you know, and it's, it's, it's a, I don't want to mention the nationality, but there is a group of people, that's how most of them buy their houses. When they come in, when a new person comes in, they take them in and they, you know, they walk. They say, okay, you know, that's how they, they walk together, support each person, you buy your house. Then the next day, everybody pulls together, you buy your house. Then that's how they do it. So they, they put it on a line and that's how they buy each other's houses, you know. And before you know it, in 10 years, they all have their houses. So we gotta be, you know, we gotta work smart, you know, because don't, if you if you look at, you know, by the time you take a loan of 200,000, if you look at how much rain, how much um, interest you're paying, Almost fifty six thousand of that money is is, is um, interest. So for a two hundred thousand uh, uh, um, loan, you pay fifty six thousand. So imagine if ten of you pay fifty six thousand in interest to the bank. So think about that. That's more than you know half a million. That's that's you know. So so think think about that. Think about it like that. You know, like you know, it, that's the kind of money that you know people are, are paying out. So if you think about it, it, it makes sense to sit down and say, you know what, across the next ten years. 10 of us, we're going to do this. Put, put laws in place, you know, sign sign things, you know, if you need to sign things. But yeah, the, 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 the flexibility makes it makes it possible. There are possibilities with it. 
there are so many possibilities with it. And, and I love that you use the word powerful. It's such a powerful thing to do. So you're saying, you know, to encourage this feeling of trust, you can see the people around you. You've seen groups of people, groups of women come together that knew each other to different extents. And they come together and they say, let's make this collective goal. And then through, through time and through these shared resources, they're all able to pool resources and achieve those dreams that maybe otherwise would have been much harder for them to do. Yeah. And I think I think that's such a powerful thing. These are the kinds of ideas we should be absorbing instead of assuming, oh, th these are this is what's against me. This is what I can't do. Well, like you said, we need to make a way around any challenge. This is what life demands at, of us at this point. And I think we should rise to that challenge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Joseph. This was such an inspiring response to this. A lot of our youth were about to start a new chapter in our lives. And I hope that through these kinds of conversations, we can feel more optimistic and empowered in hearing alternatives to our current systems of racial capitalism. I think that maybe having a community behind you changes everything. Thank you again for coming on this episode, Dr. Joseph. And this concludes our conversation on the Diverse Economies for Youth podcast. A huge thanks to Dr. Eben Joseph for sharing her thoughts on and experiences with racial capitalism and its resistances. Of course, also for her continuously active and passionate membership in the Dice Collective. To keep thinking with us, send us any questions, comments, or ideas you might have at Africana underscore economies on Instagram and Facebook, and at Africana Economy on Twitter. The Diverse Economies for Youth podcast is made by youth for youth and made possible by funding from the Canada Research Chair for Africana Development and Feminist Political Economies at the University of Toronto Scarborough. I'm Serena Bahadur and you can find me again next month on our podcast where we learn how to create a world that treats us as people instead of as profits. Thank you for listening and until next time. <laughs>